This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. For most white people, I know that when something comes up where when your biases starts to show <laughs> that you cram it down so hard and so fast and so deep because you don't want to be one of the bad white people to sit there and actually sit with that is so uncomfortable. Welcome to How To. I'm Celeste Headley, author and longtime journalist with NPR and PBS, sitting in this week. I have a question for you. Do you think of yourself as a good person at heart? I mean, it's a fair bet most of us think we are. You know, that we show each other's kindness and respect, no matter their age, gender, sexuality, or race. But at the same time, these last few years have made us all aware that we may have some biases hiding in our subconscious, influencing our behavior and not for the better. More and more of us are thinking about the way we feel towards other people and why we feel that way, including this week's listener. Hi, I'm Tim and I'm an actor. So we wanted to start by telling me about a time, maybe it's recently, maybe it's not quite as recently, when you've changed your mind or or maybe been surprised that your mind has been changed by something. Has that happened with you, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say the most striking one that I can think of is the way that my my mind has changed and broadened around transgender issues over the past 10 years. Tim told us about when his wife used to referee roller derbies. One of the competitors was a trans woman, and that was the first time Tim had met a trans athlete. I had the idea of like, well, oh, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's fair. I'm unsure. And then the more I got to know people, the more I got aware of the the complexities of everything and the, the more experience I had, I really came all the way around to, this is really powerful that people are able to show up as themselves in a space and compete at a really high level. It was a big shift for me. And I, and I was, I don't think it would have happened without the patient support of people around me, <laughs> you know. Frankly, I too, if I look back over the last, I would say, 15 years, I have probably really become more educated on trans issues as well. But when did you first start thinking to yourself, gee, I have unconscious biases. I need to find a way to work on this. Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, I think on some level, I've been aware of this for a large part of my life. I grew up in a pretty unique place in that it was a community that that actively was resisting white flight, that it was trying to create a, a more integrated, welcoming environment. Tim grew up in the late 70s and early 80s, just outside Chicago in a place that prided itself on its diversity and liberal politics. But he says it may also have given him a false sense of confidence. I had teachers that brought up the idea of implicit bias and other things like that. So I feel like I've been aware of it to a certain degree. Now, actually being able to recognize it is a whole different thing. That awareness is critical because lived experiences and identity can color every interaction you have with someone else. I don't know what I don't know, and I don't want to learn it at the cost of somebody else. 
On today's episode, how do you recognize and more importantly, overcome your implicit biases? That is the modern person's existential crisis. That's Professor Mazarin Banaji. She studied implicit bias for years at Yale and now Harvard. We think that there has been a real change at some conscious level. But we think that the that many of those beliefs are still in our heads. And that the issue for Tim and I would say our society at present is how to think about change, given that it is not simply changing one's conscious mind. As we've all come to learn, our unconscious minds have real-world consequences. Implicit bias. It is a term that's been gaining more and more momentum lately amid calls for police reform. It found black drivers were twice as likely as white drivers to have their vehicles searched and were 84% more likely to be restrained. Medical students believe that African-Americans felt less pain than white patients and even thought their skin was thicker. A mountain of evidence now shows the extent to which overt racism and implicit bias are ingrained in our police departments, doctor's offices, hiring committees, and even our daily interactions. For Tim, it's something he's thought about a lot, whether he's watching roller derby matches or discussing stereotypes at his theater company. Can we arm him, and all of us, with the tools to make meaningful change? Stay with us. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Before talking with Tim, our expert, Mazarin Banaji, asked him to take an IAT, which is an online test she developed to identify your implicit associations. There's IATs for all sorts of identities. Tim took the age and the gender career test, 
Essentially, the test asks you to quickly categorize words and pictures of people as either good or bad. What surprised me the most was that certain words were very hard. Like certain ones, it was super easy. But other ones, it was like, I kept having to stop and think every time it came up. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the benefits of taking multiple IAT tests is to sort of discover where all those little biases lie. That certainly was the case for me because I'm black and Jewish. The, when I very first took the IAT, which was years ago, um, I was shocked that I actually showed a slight preference for white associated mm -hmm. with good. That has since changed till now mm -hmm. I'm, I'm neutral. Okay. But I think, Mazarin, there's this essential mistake that's sometimes made that if you are a person of color, you can't be racially biased. Absolutely. I mean, that's what that Clark and Clark doll study in the, in the 50s actually showed and is replicated, you know, every time one does it, where black children, when given a black and a white doll, will say that the white doll is the nicer doll or the better doll or whatever. And then when asked, which of the two dolls looks like you? It is really difficult to watch the transformation on the face of that child who slowly then points to the black doll and says, that's the one that's like me but that other one is the one that's good. Um, if you look at the data in the 1930s, uh, you could go to Princeton and ask people there, tell me, what are Italians like? And they would tell you they are musical, huh. imaginative, dirty, lazy, and unreliable. Mm. That won't happen <sighs> today, right? That just, I mean, that, that's real data. Every 20 years, somebody goes back to the same location and asks the same questions, and you will see that there is massive change in what people are saying. I, I was kind of surprised on the age one, I was completely neutral. I was- No kidding. No, no one, one way or the oh, other, which- That's fantastic. Yeah, that well, is, that's you, great. You are, you are really unusual. Age is among the more pernicious ones. Not close to 90% of uh, Americans show uh, preference for young over elderly. So when you don't show this bias, Tim, did it come out neutral for you? Yeah, it came out neutral. Uh-huh. Yeah, so about, yeah, I would say about 5% of people in the population wow. show, show what you're showing. Now, no test is perfect. And over the years, people have pointed out that you can game the IAT. So while the results of your IATs are interesting, you should really focus on awareness. Mazarin, here we have Tim. He knows he has some unconscious biases. Um, age is not one of them, surprisingly. Um, and he wants to work on them. It feels like at least becoming aware of an unconscious bias is a pretty major first step. What What's the second step? Becoming aware is the first step, and the se but also the second step and the third and the fourth. There are layers and layers <laughs> and layers to awareness. You know, nothing substitutes for just getting to know people. But uh, that's not always an option, especially living as I do in a small town in rural Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I try to read a lot. I try to expose myself to, to art, like uh, created uh, by different people and, and coming from different cultural backgrounds. Like, like, I, you know, like Rutherford Falls, it's the first TV show in history with a native uh, showrunner. Great example of, of a show that's getting rid of that monolithic idea about things. You know, in Rutherford Falls, that show is sort of based around a common situation, which is where a white person has a, a very good friend who is uh, not white. In this case, it's a it's a native woman. And then 
is stunned to realize that there's all these biases and privilege that bubbles up when it comes to a point of crisis. For someone who claims to give a voice to the voiceless, you have a real problem listening. And while I appreciate you seem to have read the entire Wikipedia entry for our tribe, you will never grasp a traditional Minishanka way of life because you come from a society that values the self over the whole. I think for, for many people that can be a moment uh, of awakening. The difficulty, of course, is that this idea that we should hang out with people who are different from us, it has all of the magic of, you know, being open-minded. And that's good, but many of our encounters with people who are different from us are happening a lot, but not on equal terms. And therefore, we're only reinforcing negativity. If I, if I, you know, I have lots of prejudices about certain parts of the Middle East and how they treat women, okay? If I went to the Middle East today and I spent some time there, I think I would come back with my stereotypes even more strengthened because I would notice exactly the things that I have been worrying about, that certain people there, women don't have simple rights. Um, and that would only make it worse. So let's get into our rules. One, become aware of your biases. That could be through taking a test like the IAT or through other methods of observation and reflection. Remember that while your biases are a part of you, they're also a byproduct of culture and socialization. Two, be curious about other people's lived experiences. You can do this by consuming nuanced portrayals of different people in media or art, like Tim mentioned. Three, it's true that nothing beats human interaction, but you need to be careful. Other people don't exist to teach you. If a friendship occurs naturally, great, but be aware of power imbalances or other factors that might strengthen your bias. Also, you don't wanna be the person who dismisses criticism by saying something like, oh, my best friend is black. That kind of thing is often a sign the person has not changed their underlying biases. How do you, on the one hand, talk about the very thing that is creating the problem we are looking to solve, and the very act of talking about it could be reinforcing the very stereotypes? Right. I like to talk about this in terms of Tim's profession because I think of it as very similar. On the one hand, the world of the theater's job is to demonstrate these prejudices in the world, but also what the theater can do to help the implicit part of our brain is to provide us with new associations, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the genius mathematician who's a, a woman or whatever it might be. And I think that's what happened to anti-gay bias, which um, I'm pleased to tell you all the most recent data show that we have data from 2007 to 2020 and anti-gay bias has dropped by 64%. This is wow. implicit. How? Yeah, yeah, 64% drop. Uh, everybody's changing, grandparents and grandchildren, oh people on the coast and the conservatives and liberals are changing, right? Mm -hmm. By comparison, race bias has come down, but by 25%, okay? Mm. So much, much less. I would be interested to get your thoughts on this, Tim, because I think of this theater um, and dramatic arts in general having played a big role in changing people's minds on homosexuals and, and the gay community. Um, when you think about things like the birdcage and Philadelphia and all the in Angels of Amer over America that just 
really sort of centered those issues. Um, what do you think could be the role of your profession in not just race bias, but something that, you know, like a gender stereotype bias or transgender bias? I, I mean, I can't remember who said this originally, but I think it's a great thought that theater at its best can be, it's like a, it's like a training ground for empathy because it's, it, it, you are in a room with people witnessing and going through a, an experience together and it can allow you to connect to the humanity of, of people in a different way. And I, and I think that there's a tremendous amount of potential in that. Uh, I think there's also a lot of responsibility in that. But it does so much good for the discussion. So why is sexuality bias changing? Why is race bias changing? But not age bias, disability, and body weight bias. And when we think of it that way, we have to admit that part of it is changing because we are talking about it. And that's our next rule. You need to talk about identity and different people's experiences. Mazarin and Tim are right. Things like theater or movies are useful because they give specific examples and then launch a conversation. But that doesn't mean the conversation is going to be easy. So when we come back, we'll dive into how you can go from talking about this to taking action when the effects of implicit bias become apparent. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're back with Mazarin Banaji and our listener, Tim. A few years ago, Tim's theater was rehearsing for an updated production of A Streetcar Named Desire. And the director had cast uh, a black actress to play the upstairs neighbor. And she asked in a rehearsal, she's like, how is it that I am living in the same space with this white woman? And what is our relationship like given stuff in the 60s? This is a good question since they took the play out of its original era, the 1940s, 
and set it in the 1960s, which changed the racial dynamics. And the director didn't really, he was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, you're just friends. You're just, you know, it's like he didn't, he didn't want to look at the way that race was interacting with that moment. And I don't think I knew what to do in that space to support the conversation. I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, you know? So you didn't really say anything. No, I didn't say anything. It's it's hard to get past the, the shame or the feel, feeling like you could have been better. Well, but what would you say now if it happened today? What would you say? I I would back her up and be like, no, I think this is a really interesting point, And I think we need to examine this. This is absolutely relevant to how we are telling this story and to what it means for this actor to be fully invested in their part and for their other actors to understand what the relationship is in the space. And this is exactly what we now know because we've discussed the concept of allyship, right? That when a black woman raises a question like this, it becomes an automatic learned almost kind of response for a bunch of people who don't share that identity to be able to say, I think that's a legitimate question. And you can just change the power dynamic in a, in a little group. And I think that kind of thing can actually be done by really just practicing it until it becomes like putting on your seatbelt or brushing your teeth in the morning. We don't think about these things, but we do them because they've become habitual. It does take a little bit of boldness to speak up as a white male to speak about these issues um, because I know some people hesitate thinking, oh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be the white person jumping in here and giving my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's got to be easier than for my dark-skinned husband to tell people that what they just said was sexist or racist, mm. and he does that all the time. Um, I think white people get tons of credit for speaking up these days, and so if anything, it'll only make them be more endearing. Yeah, and I hope, too, that we're getting to a place where directors or people who have power in a room can hear uh, it can hear what might feel like criticism or rebuke and not make it about a personality thing. You know, the ability to be wrong and to keep moving, I think, is is something that's important that goes along with this. Do you feel, Tim, that someone could say to you that what you, you know, what you just said was transphobic, what you just said was sexist? Do you feel you're prepared to handle that? You know, I, the people I really love and know and trust do feel comfortable saying those things to me and and I really value it but it seems to be something that needs a certain quality of relationship now at the same time if I am saying something that's transphobic that's on me and I want to be able to to repair that and fix that our next rule is take your role as an ally seriously if you're a cisgendered straight white man understand your privilege and that it's probably easier for you to speak up. It may be awkward to challenge friends and loved ones, but that's where you actually have the most influence. I don't believe there's a single thing you say and then white bias goes away. It is it is learned at the level of little, many little things happening every day. Your parents' hand tightening on your hand when you pass a certain kind of person on the street, but not when you pass a different kind of person on the street. These are little, little, little acts that all become a part of then what we might call bias, whether it's explicit or, or implicit. But I don't want us, our, our, our listeners, to think that that means it needs to be slow. It's incremental, but a lot of little incremental things very fast can lead to 64% drop in anti-gay bias in yeah. a very short period of time. That's our next rule. 
Remember that overcoming your biases takes small steps, but it's worth doing for yourself, for others around you, and for future generations. Children learn it extremely fast. Our data with young children are among the scariest data I can share with you because, uh, you know, three-year-olds already know it at the same level as adults do. So don't assume that there are these innocent kids who become, you know, corrupted later in the culture. No, that's happening, the, you know, very, very early. But the change we're talking about, if we believe that it happened because of a certain set of historical facts that have created it, what we need to do is is change those facts in the world around us and the brain will respond. Yeah, this is difficult though, Mazarin, because I wanted to touch on some of the larger, broader issues, not just dealing with this with somebody like Tim in a theater, but some of the unconscious biases that have so much at stake. Things like racial discrepancies and disparities in medicine, mm. racial disparities mm. in criminal justice and in policing. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about incremental change and if we're talking about how difficult it is to even become aware of these, how do we handle it in these institutions like police departments? So police uh, departments are among the hardest departments because, well, they do a difficult job. And um, we believe, many of us, that that culture needs to dramatically change. And I have spoken to police departments. I did a three hour, I think maybe even four hour session with them explaining what we meant and why what we were saying was in the interest of the public and the police. But, you know, there was a police officer who must be in his 60s who was in the front row and I could just see like tears just coming down. I wasn't saying anything terribly moving. I was just showing the data on healthcare. I was showing the data on law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that if we can reach people through this path of look, this is what the data show, that's one way in which we can have impact. Mm -hmm. You know, as a scientist, I have to say, I worry that science will never change people's minds because if science could, we would all be thinking the right way about climate change and we're not. But I do think that the arts can be incredibly helpful here because of what Tim said early on, because it uses a different path. It's not the path of rational, hard, cold fact thinking, it's empathy. Tim, do you find yourself having these conversations um, not only at work, but among the people in your community? And I ask this understanding where you are in the world yeah. <laughs> and the, the protest that has arisen close to your home uh, because of the murder of George Floyd, mm -hmm. uh, the violence in Kenosha. Mm -hmm. are, are these conversations cropping up where you live? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we actually uh, I mean, we have a, a little we have a community group that that gathers once a month to talk about things like this. Uh, and it, it started last summer. I, I think everyone feels a, a, a sense of possibility and a, of like, oh, no, this is we got to deal with this now. Mazarin, do you end up having these kind of conversations um, not as a scientist, but as a person? It's a very good question because when I was younger, I would just sort of go in and say, here's the science and everything else, yeah. you know, is not on the table. That has just changed. And I think that's the power that led to the executive um, order uh, in the Trump administration last October that banned the teaching of implicit bias to all federal employees and 
people who worked for institutions that received federal support. And I'll call it cancel culture because that's what they did. Three federal agencies had to cancel talks that I was going to give. And that, of course, is the power that resides in the hands of government. And in this case, uh, you see a misuse of it. I do have to ask you about that, not about people having you speak, which I think they should always do, but about uh, implicit bias training, because Mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of evidence that the standard diversity Mm -hmm. training that most companies deploy Mm -hmm. works. Of course. I haven't haven't seen... Can you, 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 you tell me how it can work when you're dealing with a problem that is massive and you think that you should. I think the studies are really the, the problem, not, not the result. I could have told you the result a long time ago, right? Why should we expect that one two-hour session a year is going to change something that is so invisible and mm. so fundamental? I don't, I don't like the term diversity training. I, first of all, people who do it are not trained to do diversity training, so we don't even know the quality of what's being offered and what's being done. Some of it is very good, some of it is quite poor. But a lot of white Americans have told me that they had absolutely no idea what the life of their black colleague had been, and that listening to that was a major wake up for them, and that they became. Mm. So who knows? I mean, maybe there is a place for that. So let me circle this around for you, Tim, yeah. to make sure that we have solved a problem for you. <laughs> because it sounds like when I asked you if there had been an awkward situation in your workspace, the example you gave was a time when a person of color needed support from you and and you didn't give it. Yes. Um, do you feel any different now? Do you feel at all that that situation would be different next time around? I do. Uh, I think that I think that I still have some worry. Um, and I think that, you know, one of my questions would be, it's it's how do you move forward bravely and still make sure that you're doing the least amount of harm? Mazarin says that even asking that question is a good step toward addressing the problem of bias, since it's not always common to interrogate our own thought processes or think deeply about how our actions might affect others. To answer Tim's question, doing the least amount of harm may require us to go a step further, actively seeking out feedback from others and being willing to hear criticism with an open mind. Which brings us to our last rule. What I might say to Tim and people like Tim, myself included, is that you don't you shouldn't worry as much about saying exactly the right thing mm-hmm. you know we all care about how our speech comes out and we don't want to misspeak and so on but one of the things that i've learned to do when i'm in such a situation and i don't know what i'm thinking i just know that somebody said something they're about to be overlooked because it's not seen as a mainstream view and my way of intervening is to not even think about what to say but to just say the sentence i think that's important for us to pause and think about and I would never have been able to do that when I was um, younger, where I would have been shamefaced about the fact that I did not step up. Um, and age does help. I will say that I care less and less uh, about what people are going to think of me uh, and much more about what I'll think of myself. Mm. That's a that's a great way of thinking about it. I mean, as the resident conversation expert here, not the implicit bias expert, <laughs> I would say it's always okay to admit that you're about to possibly say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Like, mm. it's okay to say, I'm not yeah. sure, but I, I want to speak up, but if I, this is the wrong thing, just tell me, because mm-hmm. I'm learning. Mm. That's That's always okay. 
Thanks to Tim for sharing his story with us and to Mazarin Banaji for all of her useful advice. Be sure to look for her book, Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. And look for my upcoming book, Speaking of Race. If you want to learn more about this topic, check out an episode from last year called How to Fight Racism in Your Town. Subscribe for free to get instant access to all our episodes. Do you have a question that needs an answer? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. We just might have you on the show. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces the show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merrick Jacob, our technical director. I'm Celeste Headley. Thanks for listening.